Um, how many of you knew, know that um, April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month? Did you all know that it was a designated, okay? So not many, it is, okay? So April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and it's a time for us to honor survivors, to raise awareness through open and honest discussions, and to examine ways to put an end to a pervasive crime that impacts far too many individuals. The statistics are staggering, um, and we know that one month alone isn't enough to put an end to sexual violence. This year, through our collaboration with the library's One Book, One College program, I want to thank uh, Troy Swanson and Tish Hayes, we've really been able to devote an entire academic year and elevate the conversation on um, sexual assault, and in particular, sexual assault um, on college campuses. Um, so, with that said, we're super excited today to kick off Sexual Assault Awareness with Brendan Eukins. Um, and I've had the fortunate opportunity to hear Brendan speak on two different occasions. So I'm super excited that he's here with us today to share his expertise and the work that he does with uh, Rape Victim Advocates. And I'm going to take a minute to share a little bit more about him. Uh, Brendan Eukins is a prevention educator with Rape Victim Advocates. Prior to joining RVA, Brendan was a special educator teacher in Chicago Public Schools. Brendan's role at RVA includes developing and implementing curricula on sexual violence for students K through 12, college and adults. He provides professional trainings to community partners, faith leaders, higher education administrators, and new volunteers to RVA. Brendan is proud to co-facilitate psychoeducational groups for male survivors of sexual trauma. He passionately wants to end the stigma around male victimization and hopes to create a world where male identified survivors can get the help that they need. He holds a dual degree in theater and African American studies from Northwestern University and certification in sexual assault <laughs> adult crisis intervention, domestic violence, and sexual assault adult counselor training. Brennan is passionate about sex positivity and co-founded Wildcats Bur Burlesque, Burlesque <laughs> the largest <laughs> amateur burlesque festival in the world, which runs annually as part of Northwestern University's Sex Week. That's so cool. Thank you. <laughs> so thank you to all of you. Thank you to Brendan for being here with us today. And I'm going to go ahead and turn the mic over to you. Wonderful. And I believe I'm already, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> Um, I believe my mic is live. Is it? Can you hear it? Yeah. All right. So I'm going to start by introducing myself a little bit in the work that I do. So um, when I uh, introduce myself as a prevention educator, sometimes people are a little bit confused, right? Because when we think of a rape crisis center, we usually think of people either delivering trauma therapy services or we think of people um, also providing like legal and medical advocacy, either at the hospital or at the courthouse. And those are things that we do, they're services that we provide. But preventionists have a very special role. And my role is to study root causes of violence and then try and tackle those root causes before it escalates to either sexual assault or escalates to um, secondary and tertiary re-traumatization. What that means is that I'm teaching, pe I'm teaching young children as well as adults different tools that they have um, to combat either uh, misogyny in their own lives, fight the patriarchy, all of those good things, 
in order to make sure that um, a rape doesn't occur. But I'm also teaching parents and teachers so that if someone discloses to them, they're not re-traumatizing them. What do I mean by re-traumatizing? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. When someone discloses to somebody else that they've been sexually assaulted, in that exact moment, the first person that they disclose to has an enormous power over the individual. They can either significantly alleviate or compound the trauma that, that person is experiencing. So for example, um, we'll oftentimes we'll have clients who say, the worst thing that happened to me was when my father raped me. But what was worse than that was that my mother made me apologize to him for accusing him. Because there is a second level of trust that's being broken, oftentimes our clients have a difficult time regaining and reconnecting with the people around them because when they offered their most vulnerable part of themselves to somebody else, that person took it and smashed that trust, right? So that's what I mean by secondary re-traumatization. And tertiary would be things like a system that does them wrong. For example, if someone here on campus um, filed a Title IX investigation against another student and that Title IX investigation folded, and they didn't get any sense of justice from it, that would also be re-traumatizing. These are the reasons that for sexual assault survivors, they have the highest rate of post-traumatic stress disorder of any other single category of violence survivorship. This includes war trauma, this includes natural disasters. And the reason for that is that they're not only dealing with the violence itself, but they're dealing with people's reaction to the violence, and primarily shame. When I say shame, what do I mean? It's a word that I think we throw around, but we don't really think about. Yeah. Yeah, um, when something bad happens to us, it's an evolutionary response to try and control the situation and make sure it never happens again. So for example, if I'm surviving in the woods and I go down to the river and a piranha jumps out the river and bites me in the face, <laughs> what have I learned? Don't go to the river, <laughs> right? Absolutely. However, if that's the only river, and that's my only water source, I actually may have learned a lesson that doesn't make sense for my own survival. And we see that happening all the time with trauma. I shouldn't have worn that dress, and I wouldn't have been catcalled. I shouldn't have gone to that party, or I wouldn't have gotten raped. The reality is it's not the fault of the person who suffers the violence. But by trying to blame ourselves and shame ourselves, what we're trying to do is gain control over the situation. That's why trauma therapy can oftentimes be really difficult. Because someone is telling you, no, that is my fault. I should not have done that. And as the therapist, somebody is always wavering, OK, so it sounds like that person made the decision to do this to you, right? You don't want to invalidate that person and say what you're feeling isn't real but you also don't want to give them credence to, make, to say to themselves that this is their own fault. Because over time, what's gonna happen if that person has blamed themselves? Yeah, um, do we think the trauma symptoms are gonna get worse or better over time if they continue to blame themselves? Yeah, it's gonna go downhill really quickly. Um, that's how we end up, for example, with clients that uh, were sexually assaulted 40 years ago by a family member and are just now talking to us, right? I was working with one of our clients and she had gotten to a place where, um, because when she was little and uh, she was sexually assaulted by a family member, um, she literally waited until every single family member was dead before she was able to come forward. Over the course of that cycle, over those years, 
she had gotten to a place where she wasn't allowing herself to cry because she associated crying with literally somebody either telling her to shut up or hitting her or punishing her in some way. So when I was working with her on another project, her tears would well up in her eyes and um, she would try and kind of like swallow them back. And the joke that I had with her is, don't do it, you have to cry, you have to cry, you're gonna pee. Don't do it, you'll pee your pants. <laughs> and it was my way of sort of getting her back and grounding her back in the present moment and letting her know that it's okay. And it's okay to cry with each other. Now, I'm using the example of a woman survivor. Why might that be a little bit more difficult if it's a male survivor? Yeah. Yeah, how many of us have ever heard the phrase, boys don't cry? How many of us have ever heard the phrase, boys don't love? Really? Because I just made it up right now. <laughs> but that's the opposite of it, right? When I'm working with um, young boys, I see a switch happen between first grade and second grade. Kindergartners and first graders, when I say to them, hey, like if someone um, touched you in one of your private parts and you felt unsafe, right, how do you think you would feel? Kindergartners and first graders are accurately able to say, I would be scared, I would be mad, um, I'd want to run away. By second grade, something really interesting happens. There's a flip. My second grade boys say things like, they better not try that with me or they'll catch these hands. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Because it's uh, not, I don't know, there's a stigma around men showing emotion, so they want to show uh, masculinity and dominance and bring emotion. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, that idea that men can't show emotion means that they police each other. So any boys in the room will probably be familiar with this. You go to the playground, there's a bunch of other boys. You really want boyfriends, you really want to be part of it. And so if somebody starts picking on one of the boys, all of you jump in and start picking on him, right? If one of those boys um, does anything even remotely effeminate, suddenly it's, oh, he gay, he is so gay, right? And everyone jumps on the bandwagon. What we've created is a society in which men are supposed to hold a certain amount of power over others. And because they hold that position, the society is trying to constantly cement that power dynamic, which means that we're teaching boys from a very young age, don't cry, don't show emotion. If you do, it's weak, right? Oftentimes we use words to demean men who do show emotion. For example, what are some of those words that we use for boys who show emotion? Besides gay. As a gay man, that ticks me off, but gay is already off the table. What else have we got? Pansy. Pansy. Soft, crybaby, maybe just weak. In fact, sometimes they may even use derogatory terms for women and apply that to men. And that is the proof that's in the pudding. That's how we know that we're living within what we call a patriarchy, where men are supposed to remain dominant. Because if a man expresses emotion, and I, for example, say, you're a pussy, what I'm doing in that moment is I'm using a derogatory term for a woman which in my mind is the worst thing that you could be. Because of this, um, men have really difficult time expressing emotion to each other. Not only that, but they're incredibly lonely. Men over the age of 50 have incredibly high rates of suicide. Men whose significant others have passed away have an even higher rate because that was the person that they were talking to. Because we've created this society, 
What we've also done is limited emotional expression in all different directions. What I say to the second grade boy who says, they shouldn't do that, or you know, they'll catch these hands, is I say, you know, that's really sad to me. Because if you can't tell me that you would feel scared, how are you going to tell someone that you love them? It's called falling in love, not grabbing the love, <laughs> right? So that's going to sort of premise our whole conversation. Any questions so far? They're like, no, we haven't even started. Excellent. So uh, we're going to start off with a little game. This game is pretty simple. I have a series of pictures up here. Um, hopefully we didn't see too many of them. And if it is a picture of a man, I would like you to shout out. Oh, this is a college <laughs> campus. I would like you to shout out. <laughs> Thank you. Um, if it is anything else, then you have to shout out whatever that other thing is. Cool? All right, let's go. Ooh, that is in fact a chicken. <laughs> Woman eating salad and laughing. One of my favorite Google image searches. <laughs> man. Yep, man. Ah, that is not a man, that is a doll. Look at it. <laughs> man with cat on face, very good. Statue, not a man. Man holding shark. Man, correct. Miss Fame, very famous drag queen. Man. Mm -hmm. Ah, paper towel. Not a man. <laughs> Very much a paper towel. So um, some of you may be thinking, hold on a second. I've taken a queer studies class, and I know that gendering people is wrong. And you are correct. What I'm trying to show you throughout this entire experience is that we tend to think of gender on a binary. What do I mean by a binary? Yeah. Yeah, there's only two, right? We know that gender is a spectrum, and it goes in many different directions. And some people don't even think gender exists. And they're like, whatever, gender nonconforming. This doesn't work for me. However, why is it easier for us to identify some pictures as man before others? Yeah. Absolutely, we do. And it's based off of a series of clues that are given through somebody's gender expression. So for example, when I'm standing up here, what may make you think that my gender identity is male? Got a beard. Tattoos. Tattoos. Even though it's a flower, but go ahead. <laughs> my body structure. What about my body structure? <laughs> right, I have broader shoulders. Right, absolutely. Something I like to do with volunteers when they're coming in to be um, rape victim advocates with us is I oftentimes will close my shirt and I'll say, do I have visible chest hair? And a lot of them will say, yeah, yeah, of course. And I don't. What's interesting is that what we have is categorical brains. It's developed because we were originally prey animals. A categorical brain means that when I'm standing completely still, you're able to tell that I'm a human being and that is a wall because you're categorizing me as a person. Who here has like a cat at home? Cool, yeah. Predators have motion-based eyesight. What happens when you throw the cat treat and then the cat treat stops? What does the cat do? 
yeah, they might look at it. They might be like looking around, like, way to go, way to go. And that is because predators have motion-based eyesight, right? Their brains fundamentally work differently than our brains. For our brains, we have categoric, we have, we create these categories, and it actually influences the way that we perceive the world. So, for example, when we think about man, we may picture someone that looks like this. Even though this isn't a man, this is a paper towel, right? But because we have a schema in our minds of what a man is supposed to look like, we're easy to identify that this is a man. Now, why might it be more difficult for us to identify this trans man as a man? What is the societal bias that we're working against? Yeah, absolutely. So he's just had um, gender confirmation surgery, right? Absolutely. What else? And it's actually something really subtle. He's smiling. What is really interesting is that it's really difficult for us to imagine a schema of masculinity in which men are having fun. Oftentimes, we associate stoicism with masculinity. This, <laughs> right? Oftentimes, you will hear of a grumpy old man. Rarely will you hear of a happy-go-lucky old man. However, for older women, oftentimes, how do we describe older women? Cheery, motherly, right? Supportive. This gives us proof that not only is masculinity um, an exaggeration in our mind, but we actually have started policing men just in the way that we talk. Here's the other thing about it. Those categories are exaggerated based on the amount of trauma that people are exposed to. So, for example, you're more quickly able to say, that's a man, that's a woman, that's a man, that's a woman, if you perceive that men are a threat and that women are safe. How many of us have been sexually harassed, catcalled, hollered at, fill in the blank? Quite a few of us, right? I guarantee you, um, your scheme of masculinity is going to be a lot quicker because you started to associate men with danger. Um, for a lot of us, we associate men with danger, unfortunately. But if we dig really deep into masculinity, I'd like to pose this question to everybody. What makes somebody a man? Yeah. Uh, talk to me. Yeah, like talk to me. What does that mean? Uh, how how does he act? Cool. Um, how would a man act with somebody that you might make you say, "Oh, that's a man." Oh, so he's gentle. Okay. Cool. 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 Somebody else said something. Yeah. Genitals. All right. Talk to me about that. What do we mean? All right, so oftentimes we associate masculinity with like literally having a penis. And oftentimes we've literally reduced that so much in our society that we consider people with like a bigger penis like more of a man. People with a smaller penis less of a man, right? That's a big thing. Anything else? If you had a son that came up to you tomorrow and said, mommy or daddy or parental guardian, and they said, I want to be a good man. What makes a good man? What would you tell your son? Yeah. Huh? 
Okay, so honest. What else? What, what, who here has the sun? Oh, nobody has the sun. Okay, never mind. <laughs> but what would you tell your hypothetical son? Yeah. Okay, respectful towards women. Honest. What else we got? Yep. All right. Yeah, don't let the haters get you down. Yep. All right, cool. Yes. Be gentle with other people. Be confident. Yep, golden rule, absolutely. So whenever I ask that question to an audience of people, I get very good information as a preventionist. The first thing that I understand is how people have been treated by men in their life, either positive or negative. If I'm in groups in which, um, for example, when I do trainings uh, for like the Army Reserves, those answers are going to be very, very different than when I do trainings for classroom teachers. And those are going to be very, very different than when I do trainings for faith groups. What that list tells me is how the community perceives what a man should be. First thing I learned as a teacher, though, is never to actually call one of your students any of those words. And I'll use one, smart. As a teacher, the second I say, you are smart. Sorry, what's your name? Matt. Hi, Matt. So the second I tell Matt, Matt, you are so smart. Thank you for answering that question. I actually create an issue. First thing I've done is I've made Matt terrified because now he has a reputation to uphold. What if he answers the next question wrong and suddenly I, as his teacher, don't think he's smart anymore? So it's actually less likely that he'll answer a question in the future. Second thing is that if I say, Matt, you are so smart, what have I taught all of you? Yeah, you're dumb. <laughs> I've insinuated that everyone else at least is not as smart as Matt. What we do with our young boys is that we say, you have to be respectful to women, you have to be complimentary, you have to be funny, you have to be rich, you have to be good looking. And if you do all of these things, people are going to like you. Not only people, but girls are going to like you. And that implies something very dangerous. It implies that men are not inherently lovable. That they have to change themselves in some way to make people love them. That's where we get that very performative aspect of masculinity. For those of you that have been catcalled, if someone feels comfortable sharing, what were the actual words that were being said? If no one feels comfortable, I can put some in. That's totally fine. So oftentimes when people are catcalled, it'll be things like, hey, pretty mama. Oh, you are so beautiful. Technically, what they're being is kind or complimentary. Does it feel that way? Absolutely not, right? Um, what happens if you say, no, thank you, juicy fruit, not today, and you clutch your purse and you keep walking? <laughs> what happens? They still follow you. Uh, and what might they be saying as they follow you? Yeah, right? Why are you being so mean? Can't you take a compliment? What you're actually seeing in a microcosm from a preventionist standpoint is a man who's been taught, if I am only complimentary, women are going to like me. If I'm taught that, what I'm really being taught is that love is a choice, or even just attraction is a choice. But just like your favorite food, you didn't pop out of the womb saying, I want pizza rolls today. You had to try a few foods and figure out what you like. If I have been taught that if I'm only complimentary, women are going to like me, I'm going to interpret rejection as an act of malice, 
as opposed to interpreting it as someone just giving a preference. And oftentimes, it's going to spiral into whatever, if you bitch, you're ugly anyways, right? That anger is because they're trying so hard to be this vision of a man. And it's being undermined in a second. Now, why does this lead to violence? Yeah. All right, so it teaches men to be aggressive, right? Go-getters, barge into the meeting. It doesn't matter as long as the boss gets to see you. What else? What's another way that it could lead to violence? Yeah. Yeah, right? If you can't take no from a woman, how are you going to make a marriage last? Like, honestly, I'm married and my, I say no to my husband all the time, and it's healthy, right? Um, how are men going to start treating each other? Yeah, masculinity becomes a competition, right? How long is my beard? How big is my dick? How much uh, woman have I slept with? X, Y, Z, blank, blank, blank. It's going to become a competition. Who you are as a person can't be compared to anybody else. But if I define for a whole generation of boys that who they inherently are is going to be measured against anyone else who identifies as male, I'm going to get into a world where things start to go a little bit awry. So in this world of constant competition, we have several characteristics that we associate with masculinity. We have strength, aggression, violence, particularly reactionary violence, right? Did you step on my shoes? Right? That's reactionary. Um, money or the focus on making a lot of money, um, sexual prowess, heroism, power, aloofness, and then stoicism. Stoicism I've underlined because we talked a little bit about emotionality being taken away, but there's something else that goes along with this. Who, what does stoicism mean? Somebody fill that in for me. Yeah. Right, blank slate, no emotion. And why is that um, championed? Yeah, so has anyone ever been in a fight with a man and the man says, um, I can't take you seriously when you're this emotional? Oh, look, it's only women raising their hands. That's so exciting. <laughs> um, stoicism is the belief that emotion is the opposite of rationality, right? That in order for someone to be rational and have true thought, that their head must rule their heart, that they have to be emotionless as they're making decisions. Here's the thing. There's a man who lives on my block who um, asked me for money once, and I didn't give it to him. So every time that I see him now, um, he calls me the bitch motherfucker. And he'll shout it in my face. And he's like, yeah, you're a bitch motherfucker. Right? Now, if I turned around and I said, well, you are a small chicken, what's going to happen to me? I could get jumped. Absolutely. At the very least, he's going to start shouting even more. Why, when I have that interaction with him, my ability to predict three steps in the future and to say, listen, if I responded reactionarily to this man, it's going to escalate, is a form of emotional intelligence. Being able to relate to people, to understand what they're going through, even just to put yourself into someone else's perspective, is intelligence. 
But within Stoicism, we don't see that as intelligence. And it diffuses into our entire society. Do you think I get paid as much as a stockbroker? And yet I've had stockbrokers at parties after a few drinks lean over to me and say in a hoarse whisper, I could never do the job that you do. The counselors that are here have probably had that experience. We do not get paid enough money, period, point blank. No, we do not. However, the work that we do, people know on an intrinsic level, for a lot of them, they wouldn't be able to do the work that we do. They wouldn't be able to sit across from a man who has tried to kill his father and listen very quietly and very succinctly to what he's saying, and then to follow it up with, wow, that sounds extremely painful. I'm sorry that that happened to you. That takes a level of emotional intelligence I know that most of my friends don't have. But because we don't dignify emotional intelligence, we're led to believe that the only thing that is going to keep our society moving forward is that cold, hard rationality. Unfortunately, because of this, men have extremely difficult times expressing emotions to each other, and it leads to a lot of horrible symptoms. The first and foremost is depression. Um, there are more boys today that have clinical depression than there are girls. For girls, the expression of that um, is oftentimes followed among what society has taught them is the appropriate way to express sadness, right? When we think of depression, what are the symptoms that we think of? Crying? Someone say crying. Cool. Sorry? Yep, sleeping a lot. Yep, feeling hopeless. Abs isolation. Sorry? No motivation, right? Um, does anyone know the common symptoms of depression in adolescent boys? Anger. Does someone say acting out? Acting out. Antisocial. Agitated. So because these are external expressions of depression, oftentimes people are slow to actually associate them with depression. So that's why I would have boys that were in my class when I was a SPED teacher who would take their chair and um, when somebody said that they couldn't have like an extra lunch, would throw it against the wall, right, and would scream. Well, turns out that that particular student was going through a domestic violence situation at home. But he was misdiagnosed as having objective defiance disorder. <laughs> Has anyone ever heard of that before, ODD? <laughs> yeah. Um, either oppositional, objective defiance disorder, basically like they're not following the rules, right? But nobody was actually saying, hey, this baby's heartbroken, and he needs someone to talk to. So depression is rampant. Anxiety, right? If I'm in constant competition with all the men around me and all of us are, you know, like who's going to outman each other, it's going to make me very anxious. Volatility is going to be that lashing out, right? Um, if I'm in that constant competition and I have to outman the people around me, having somebody um, say to me, like, hey, I think you made a mistake, is going to be like, no, I didn't make a mistake, Martha. Let me explain to you what's happening here. Um, sexual violence is going to be huge, right? Because we can't take rejection. Uh, and escalation. Escalation is a clear sign that somebody has not developed their emotional intelligence. I have an uncle who loves to go to the bars. And he used to, <laughs> it used to be sort of an ongoing joke where it's like, there he goes again. You know, he would punch up some people and he would be 
uh, overnight held by the police and we go and pick them up in the morning. How many of us have an uncle like that? <laughs> right? <laughs> um, escalation is not emotionally intelligent. Right? You're just damaging property. Um, and then, of course, the bullying and entrapment of women. In this world where masculinity starts to be associated with dominance, we see it reflected throughout an entire culture. Who here has seen Man vs. Food? Can someone explain to me what this show is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, is this sustainable? No, he actually had to stop doing the show, right? Because it doesn't matter how much you exercise, it doesn't matter how healthy you are when you're off the show, nobody can eat like a sack of 12 cheeseburgers and be okay the next day, right? Um, Man vs. Wild, who's seen this one? Right, someone give me the premise of it. Yeah, but the way that he survives um, is very masculine, right? Like, I'm going to drink my own pee. I'm going to dive off of the waterfall. I'm going to do all these things. Trust me, as a person who is the president of the community garden in my neighborhood, surviving in the wild takes a lot of nurturing. You got to plant the seed, make sure it grows all nice, right? And in fact, uh, I love um, the show Naked and Afraid because it's the greatest response to this. One of the, something that always happens in the show Naked and Afraid is similar concept, but it's a man and a woman who are dropped off. And the man is always like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make nature my bitch. This is going to be great. And like the third day, he's like, oh, I'm dehydrated. Medic, medic, medic. And he has to be taken out. Usually the women that are there are like, OK, well, I don't know so much about this, but I'll try my best. And then they get there, and it's like, bam, she's made a fire. Bam. She has food. Bam, she's made a shelter, right? And the reason for that is because our inherent understanding of what it takes to make it in the world has been so skewed that we're actually very removed from what we need. If you ever have a family, you're probably going to need to talk to your kids about emotions. Uh, my supervisor just recently had her baby, really wonderful. And she commented how when her husband came to the hospital, something that he saw was a whole line of men, while their wives are literally going into labor, sitting on their phones. And to me, that is so sad. Because first of all, she's lonely. You should probably go in there. But secondly, what sort of connection are you going to have to that child if the entire time that she was in labor, you were sitting there playing Candy Crush? Right? Or um, who's getting the kids ready for school in the morning? If the entire time she's running around doing these things, no, your kids are not going to have an in-depth relationship with you. That's where that loneliness comes in. Last one is this meme that says, real men still do this. Do what? Open the door for a girl. What do we usually call that? Chivalry, right? Um, chivalry, the belief that one has to behave very knight-like, right, was literally born out of the Middle Ages where people were killing each other so often they had to figure out a way that the knights wouldn't slice each other's heads off sitting at the same table. Chivalry is the understanding that I could be doing violence right now, but I choose not to. 
I withhold the violence because I am a good man. And it's so seductive because it means I can always win at being a good man. When I go out, um, how many of you like played soccer as a kid or played soccer today? After the game is done, what are you supposed to do? Yeah, you shake hands or you do that thing. When I was a kid, we put little chocolates in our hands, so we were like passing off the chocolates. That's the only reason I played, because of the chocolate. I'll be completely <laughs> honest with you. What's happening there is that regardless if I've won or lost, which would be a measure of my masculinity, instead, what I'm doing is I still get to win at being a man. Because I get to come on the field and say, good game, very good game, nice, man. Mm. And by doing that, I get to come out on top. Um, this leads to what I like to call the dissociative state of manhood. The counselors may be um, more familiar with the concept of dissociation. Dissociation means that your body is protecting you from feeling things by taking your mind somewhere else. Um, this could feel like what's happening around you isn't real. Um, it could feel like you're a meat puppet. Um, it could feel like you have a record broken in your head of the same thoughts going over and over and over and over again. What happens with men, because we stifle them so much emotionally and they stifle themselves so much emotionally, is they end up not being able to communicate with each other. And so what should be helped early on is not intervened in. I'm going to skip this one because we have to, for the sake of time, keep going. But how does this all re relate to male survivors? Well, because of this masculinity paradigm that we've put on men, it is incredibly difficult for male survivors who have been sexually assaulted or sexually abused to seek help from other people. Um, we know that about roughly 16% of men will be sexually assaulted before the age of 18. Does that surprise people? It's a lot higher. Usually when we think of sexual assault or sexual abuse, what is the victim that we picture in our minds? Right, a woman. We usually picture a younger woman. And in fact, we usually picture somebody who is stereotypically attractive because we tend to think of sexual assault or sexual abuse uh, as being about sexual attraction. Sexual assault and sexual abuse is not about physical attraction to somebody else. It's about power and control, like any other form of violence. The reason that people are using sexual assault or sexual abuse is because there's enough shame and embarrassment that the person probably won't be able to tell the people around them. Um, the proof for this is kind of in the pudding. When I'm having the psychoeducational groups for male survivors, um, oftentimes they will actually talk about their assault itself. And their perpetrator was not gay. Their perpetrator was not bi or queer in any way. Um, he was trying to hurt them. For gay survivors, oftentimes their assailant is heterosexual, and he hates them for being gay. I had a client who told me that he came out to his father as bisexual, and his father turned around and raped him. And as he was raping him, said into his ear, this is what happens to faggots. The reason that he's doing it was to try and create a negative correlation between having any sort of sexual experience with a man and being sexually assaulted. And unfortunately, it worked. He couldn't engage sexually with men. He was bisexual, so he stayed mostly with women. Because whenever he did, he would become nauseous, right? Or he would feel such deep shame that he couldn't bring himself to go to work the next day. 
When we think of that 16%, what's even scarier is because we've set up this paradigm of men being aggressive and going and getting sex from women, right? Only about 16% of men who were interviewed in the ER, um, and I should clarify, these were, um, they were also boys that were in this category, could actually identify that that's why they were there. So only 16% of that 16% we're able to identify that that's what had happened to them. Doesn't mean the trauma wasn't happening. The trauma was still there. But they aren't able to identify it. I was in a classroom and a sixth grade boy, um, we were going over like words we use for sexually active men, sexually active women, things like that. And the boy in my class um, said, oh, I'm already a man. I said, oh, why do you think that? And he said, because I've already lost it. I said, Oh, okay. And he said, yeah, I lost it with my babysitter. She's 19. I'm a man. What had actually happened to that boy? It was statutory rape, right? But because we've taught boys that they're in this man competition all the time, he literally thought that it was a positive experience that he had had. He was still having trauma symptoms. Um, he had fight symptoms, and he also had free symptoms, which means that as he was disclosing to me, he's like, you don't know, you don't know anything. And then he would just get really quiet and would be frozen for a long time. Um, until, 19, until the 1990s, the FBI sexual assault definition itself was forceful penetration of the vagina by a penis. Not only does that leave out anyone who's ever been raped orally or um, raped in any other capacity, but male survivors literally were not in the definition. Um, and because of it, symptoms of their trauma is often misdiagnosed and misunderstood. For a lot of men who've experienced sexual trauma, which is having total power taken away from you, um, they might have a lot of trouble holding on a job because their boss will tell them to do something and their immediate reaction is like, no, I'm not going to do that just because you told me to, right? Um, and also, male survivorship in our culture is trivialized and often erased. Um, how many of you have heard of, for example, soldiers coming back from war that have post-traumatic stress disorder? Not many of us will know that a significant amount of those men who are experiencing PTSD are experiencing it because they were raped while they were abroad. When I work with those men, they will often say, that was, my battle that was my battle buddy, that was my battle brother. He was the person that was supporting me, right? And then he raped me. And that person doesn't have any recourse. Because if they go and report it, people are going to be thinking of this. Has anyone ever seen Horrible Bosses? Do, what's this storyline right here? Yeah, so in this movie, right, that came out, I don't know, like a few years back, um, there's literally one of the through lines is one of the characters has a boss who is actively trying to rape him. And as she is doing it, the other guys are like, I don't see what the problem is. <laughs> what a comedy. And what we're actually seeing is a world in which not only are we actively telling boys they can't have emotion, we're actively telling them this is the way that you have to have relationships, we're also telling them, if you're raped, you better shut up. Because if you don't, people are, you're going to be a laughing stock. A lot of times this directly translates into a lot of psychological symptoms that I see in clients. 
first of which, particularly for young boys, is the question, does this make me gay? Right? Um, unfortunately, we also know that children who are marginalized from the get-go are probably going to have a harder time being believed. And so when I'm working with a young boy who is gay and was targeted because he was in a conservative classroom or a conservative neighborhood, what ends up happening is that they get targeted because they know if they're too ashamed to even tell people that they're gay, they're never going to be able to tell that somebody has sexually abused them, right? But for most of the boys that I work with that have been sexually abused, they're not. What ends up happening is um, they know that it's a bad thing. That's what they've been told from an early age, is that being gay is bad. And they have internalized that, and they're trying to take control of the situation with that same victim blaming that we talked about before. Maybe this is my fault. Maybe this is something that I did. They obviously have a lot of shame, guilt, and fear. Um, a lot of trivialization and denial of their own experience, right? It happens, but I'm sure it happens to a lot of boys your age, is something that I hear a lot. Um, and then also a lot of self-blame that's connected to ideas of manhood. So for example, um, men will oftentimes, as a reaction, try and like superman it afterwards. They'll become super aggressive at their jobs because they're like, if I am the best lawyer I ever will be, nothing like this will happen. If I'm the best dad that'll ever be, none of this will happen ever again, right? And then they oftentimes will have fatalistic or negative thoughts about the future. So for example, um, I'll use myself as an example. I'm, I'm a survivor. I like to be pretty candid about it because male survivorship has such a stigma around it. So I'm thinking to myself, like, if I am candid about it and then somebody's watching and he's like, ooh, me too, it's a little bit less scary for him. This is a three and a half hour tattoo. And it's something that I didn't really think about when I got it. I was just like, yeah, it's tulips. I love tulips, right? This is an example of fatalistic thinking. I did not think about how this is going to look when I'm 60 years old. <laughs> I did not think about if I even liked tulips that much. Because on some subliminal level, I was thinking to myself, I'll die young. Same thing when I was chain smoking all the time, right? I would finish teaching a class and go outside and like smoke like four cigarettes and be like, <coughs> I'm fine. We're good. Let's go teach. And the reality is, is because I didn't see any consequences in my near future because I assumed that I wasn't going to live very long. Now, I like my tattoo now, don't get me wrong, right? I don't smoke as much. <laughs> but it is something that is always in the back of people's minds. Um, for trans, gay, and queer male identities, there's going to be an interplay here. There might be a lot of self-blame based on identity. If I wasn't gay, this wouldn't have happened. Um, this is a survivor from Project Unbroken. Um, and on the signs that he's holding, uh, it's his girlfriend at the time saying, you're trans? Oh, no, don't do that to yourself. Don't do that to your body. No one wants a tranny. And then after she raped him, he, she said, see, you're beautiful the way that you are. For a person who was born trans who um, is not currently presenting the way that they want to be presenting, and already society is shutting them down, um, sexual abuse can really uh, screw up their own journey of self-actualization. Because suddenly, they're blaming themselves based on the fact that, oh, if I wasn't trans, this wouldn't have happened. In terms of self-blame uh, around sexual norms, I was at a, a very fine establishment called the Jackhammer. 
um, which is a joke that flies in Chicago, but we're all the way out here and people are like, I don't know what that means. Uh, so just, just in case there's people who've never experienced this before, Jackhammer is a bar and in the bottom there's what's called a sex dungeon. It's BDSM and it's a gay bar. But that's downstairs. I was up on this level watching RuPaul's Drag Race, which is another great show that all of you straight people should go and watch. And I'm sitting at the bar and there's two men next to me. And one of them is pushing his partner up against the bar and trying to take down his pants. And the other guy is saying, no, no. He's saying it softly, but he's saying it firmly. So with my Long Island in hand, I leaned over and I said, all right, boys, keep it fun, but keep it consensual, OK? And I smiled like an alligator. And of course, the boyfriend gets all upset. He comes, he blows up at me like, what the fuck? What are you doing? My face this is my life, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I was just here watching RuPaul's Drag Race. I want to make sure that we're all having a fun time, OK? I was just concerned. So it was dramatic. I down the drink. I go into the bathroom. Lo and behold, who follows me in but his boyfriend? And his boyfriend has tears running down his face. And he says, you're the first person to say anything. I'm from San Salvador. He's taken my passport, and I can't get out. So we spent about an hour in the bathroom just doing crisis counseling. He's besides himself. He doesn't know how to get help. He doesn't know if anyone are going to help him. And I have to call BS on my own community, because if that was a white boy, I guarantee you people would have cared. After an hour of you know, counseling him and doing that, boyfriend has already left. I come out of the bathroom, and I'm surrounded by the friends that were with me, all saying things like, Brendan, why do you get up in people's business? That wasn't any of your concern. You shouldn't have done that. And how this ties into sexual arms is like, because we're at the jackhammer, Brendan. Like, you know this is going to happen. It's amazing how when you're within a community that is constantly facing hate crimes from the rest of the world, we're so quick to hurt each other. Um, corrective rape is also huge. Corrective rape means somebody, just like the client I mentioned before, comes out to you and then you're trying to either turn them straight, right, um, or convince them otherwise. And then homophobic and transphobic service providers, listen, if I show up to the ER and people are like, oh, you're here for, oh, sexual assault? You, you are here for sexual assault? Oh, who sexually assaulted you? Oh, it was a man? Of course I'm not going to feel taken care of. If I've, just been if I've just been raped and I'm traumatized, yeah, I'm not going to open up to the people around me. In terms of sexuality, sexuality is also going to be altered a little bit. A lot of times people will use porn or they'll use fantasy or sex work to replay a sexual assault script. Um, this is. Uh, back. How are we doing on time? Somebody let me know. Ah, perfect. So in terms of sexuality, sexuality is also going to be altered. Um, this is the time that I use my own survivorship as a story. I'm prefacing it right now because it may be very emotionally charged for people. I will not be offended if you walk away. Um, well, first I'm just going to destroy the podium. Um, when I was 14 years old, had my first boyfriend. And uh, I was totally swept away by it. And I had seen all of these, um, you know, fight the power gay movies that had said, you know, you're going to find the love of your life. And despite the odds, you guys are going to get together and get married and live in a valley farm with 16 dogs. And it's going to be great, <laughs> right? 
And then I broke up with that boyfriend. And suddenly I fell into a depression because that whole story about how I'm going to survive and thrive as a queer man in America was suddenly flipped. So, went online, went onto a dating site, found someone who said that he was my own age, snuck out of the house to go meet up with him. Turns out he was 27, and he raped me. After that incident happened, uh, I thought with that self-blame, like, oh, you know, it's, it's like whatever. I'm strong. And so I went online again. I found another person, and I was raped again. And that kept happening from 14 to 19 years old. I don't have the exact count. What happens with your hippocampus in your brain is that your memories are often damaged. And so after those few years, I've gone through it with a therapist, and we've tried to tick off. I think I was raped a grand total of nine times by nine different men. What's happening in that is that I'm trying to replay the sexual assault scripts, and I'm trying to come out on top. And it wasn't done in a safe way. Obviously, I wasn't having the support that I needed at home to actually talk to somebody about it. And I didn't have the support that I needed at school. I was having clear trauma responses at school, and the teachers weren't picking it up. Because oftentimes, it's a lot easier to believe that you have an erratic gay student in front of you than you have a gay student who's being raped at home. When we talk about that, what ended up happening is that the shame and pain from my own survival story was being linked with arousal and then ending up with self-loathing, right? Because I was saying to myself, like, I need to do this, which nobody needs to do. And then after it was done, I would turn back and start hating myself even more. During that time, I actually developed um, exercise uh, bulimia, otherwise called exercise anorexia, where you eat a very, very small amount of food and then you go running, right, to burn it all off. I got to the point where I was so skinny that my mother literally said, Brendan, I can see your skull through your face. But I couldn't stop. Penetrating others may also be dissociative, right? If someone's been raped, they may interpret all sexual interaction that's masculine in approach, like being penetrative, as a sign of rape, right? So men may dissociate. They may not have a good sexual relationship with their partner. Sadistic sexual urges, right? If I have been raped, I may say, like, I'm going to do this to somebody else. And then the flip side of that is self-censorship, right? Um, oftentimes, I'll be working with male clients who are terrified of interacting with their kids because they were raped as a kid and they think that they're going to do it to their kids. The response from a clinical standpoint is to say, oh, well, if you're concerned about that, it's, you're probably not going to do it, right? Because if you're concerned about it, that's telling me that you have that humanity. This actually happened to me as well. I woke up in the middle, <laughs> I woke up in the middle of the night and I said to my husband, Ken, Ken, I am so terrified that I'm going to like, rape a teenager the way that I was raped. Of course, it's the middle of the night, so he was like, Brendan, what the fuck? No, like you're not. <laughs> but that's what happens, right? Because we're trying to control the situation, and we're trying to regain a sense of agency. The last is body betrayal. 
If you are anally penetrated, no matter if it's consensual or not, it is highly likely as a man that, or sorry, I should say, as someone that has a penis, because the prostate is located in there, that you will have an erection. Doesn't mean that you like it, doesn't mean that it's good, right? But it does mean that oftentimes male survivors have a deep sense of shame because they're saying to themselves, well, like, I got an erection, I must have liked it, this is, this is bad, right? I'm a bad person. And that's what we call body betrayal. We talked about a, being obsessive with being like the perfect father or the perfect employee. And this I do all the time, right? I literally, my supervisor has to stop me sometimes because I'm like, it's okay, I'll do a full day, I'll teach six classes in elementary school, then I'll just bob over to the church and uh, host a discussion at the church and, and then I'll, I'll go and do like a discussion at this bookshop, it's fine. And my supervisor's literally like, Brendan, that is a 15 hour day. So nope, that's not fine, right? And she has to curb me back. Um, people oftentimes have shared with me that this perfect father, um, if they've had a father who was traumatized, they may be obsessed with like their safety. I had someone share with me that whenever she went to a party, um, her father would like follow her in his car to make sure that she got to the party there okay, because he was terrified that she was going to be somehow like snatched. Um, they might be over in involved in their children's lives um, or other children's lives that aren't even their kids. So, um, like, they may show up to, like, their nieces and nephews, like, every single soccer game. And it's like, great, I'm glad that you love your nieces and nephews. Also, that's not really necessary to have a relationship with them. We talked about that fear of interacting with children. Also, insomnia. It's amazing to me how many male survivors I work with can't sleep in their beds. That they literally have to either drink themselves into sleep or smoke themselves into sleep, and then they'll pass out on the couch, and then they'll get over to the other side at a different time. We talked about bulimia and anorexia nervosa, also binging or numbing using alcohol and drugs. A lot of times when we think of anorexia, who is the person we think of as being anorexic? Women, what, 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 what kind of women? Models, right, pageant girls, right? There's that Beyonce video where she's like eating the cotton balls, right? Um, the reality is that there are actually more men who are diagnosed with bulimia than there are women. Uh, when you have those guys who are obsessed about going to the gym and they're not eating, right? What it is is it's not because of any sort of body image, anything like that. What you're literally doing is you're starving out your body to increase one of the four neurotransmitters, um, or actually a combination of a few of those neurotransmitters that are, it makes it easier to cope, right? So it's a dissociative thing. Um, rage is gonna be huge. Men feel powerless. Right, so they're going to express rage as a way to reassert that. And then after the rage is done, just like we talked about with sexual um, aggression, right, after it's done, you feel a sense of shame again. Flashbacks to nightmares are very common. Fear of being dominated is huge. And then a flattened effect or a prolonged dissociation. That's like when somebody's talking to you and they're telling you their story and it's like they're listing off a laundry list, right? They're like, yeah, my dad raped me when I was nine and you know, it was difficult for a time, and then I got over it, right? That's prolonged dissociation. That's not healthy. So this is how I'm going to wrap it up. And first, I want to thank you all for coming and being here and listening to this. This is actually a form of prevention. Because my hope is that after um, our conversation today, our minds are expanded around male survivorship a little bit, which takes away a little bit of that stigma in this community. Um, but this is what I'd like to ask you. How can we support male survivors who feel 
that asking for help is emasculating. You can turn to the person next to you and talk about it like for like a minute. Go. All right, good ideas are done. Now, what did we talk about? <laughs> All right, so we have hotline help resources that are there. Cool. How is it going to help if men don't feel like they can call the sexual assault hotline? All right, absolutely. Any other ideas? He said anonymous, Helen. Sorry, I forgot that I have to repeat for the recording. Yeah. I'm just thinking about like first we have to understand like what are some of the institutional barriers that we have to Yeah, I'm repeating it back for everyone to hear is um, changing kind of institutional barriers that may exist. For example, like having conversations like this, making sure that literature has both male and female pronouns on it. I will say right now, if you're at a college campus or you're working on one, and everyone who is contacting you for sexual assault survivorship services, whether it's like advocacy or counseling, are female identified, that's a problem, right? Because statistically, we know that that's not the case. Cool. Anything else? All right, well, I have some suggestions. <laughs> um, first and foremost is that we have to bridge the conversation. If we talk about sexual assault and sexual abuse like it's a, like a woman's issue, right? And I even have difficulty. I went to an international and violence against women conference yesterday, and all of the pronouns were female, like all the way through. Um, but the reality of the situation is that uh, rape crisis work should not be majority female. It should be inclusive of all genders, right, that are there. Um, we can teach bystander engagement, which is basically saying, hey, if this doesn't affect you directly, it could affect a friend or a family member. Here's how you intervene if you see something happening. But we also have to rewrite a lot of our social scripts. If you have a young boy in your life um, and he starts crying and he runs up to you, uh, first reaction that we often have as adults is, oh, don't cry, right? That's completely invalidating for the child. Allow them to. Allow boys to fall in love. Allow boys to have male friendships with each other. Allow boys to like have male friendships with each other that, are, like, that can also be platonic, right? A lot of times, men don't even touch each other because they're so scared of being perceived as gay. Um, 
And then also nurturing. Uh, this is a picture of a little boy planting a flower. How many of you, when you were itty bitties um, in your science class, you had the seed and you put it in the wet paper towel and you put it in the Ziploc bag, you put it on the window, right? Yeah, so it was clever because your teacher, you thought you were learning about photosynthesis, but in reality, um, your teacher was teaching you how to nurture something, right? If you have to take care of something and bring it to fruition, that's a form of emotional intelligence, and it's something we have to teach all children, but particularly boys. Because if we teach them throughout their entire life that the woman nurture and you destroy, <laughs> um, first of all, it's not sustainable in terms of the relationships they have, but it also causes them to inflict violence back on themselves. Um, do we have any questions now that we're at the end? Cool. Well, um, what I will say, oh yeah, go for it. Yes. Congrats. Yeah, um, it's interesting. Oftentimes, even in our relationships or in the way that we treat other people, we sometimes still think of it like a competition, right? Um, and we have this sort of achievement mentality about everything, right? It's not just about holding doors open, but it's also like, oh, I want my sons to have really successful careers. I want them to have healthy families, I, you know, X, Y, and Z. And it's coming from a really, a very real place, right? As a parent, you don't want your child to suffer. Um, what I would say is we have to get out of the achievement mindset um, because I think it directly feeds into masculinity. Waking up in the morning, existing, and going to sleep, you've accomplished something, right? But if we drill into boys like you have to make motions and change the world around you at every single step, that's I think when we get into that chivalry language. Whereas if we tell people that it's like being good isn't a competition, it's you know just the way that you would like to be treated, or um, then we can disengage from that. Um, what I find interesting about chivalry is like chivalry is almost like a tally card of like Christian manhood, because <laughs> you often associate it with like ideas of like Christian manhood, and so there's a sense of like you have to be dignified and like the best. And it's funny, I'm Catholic, so going to church, it's like a bunch of men, and they all like are like trying to outsuit each other. <laughs> Um, I think the other thing that, to keep in mind is the same way that I would say that your children um, don't need to be an achievement mindset, I think parents don't have to be an achievement mindset, right? Like, there's no, there's, 
we are all so scared of failing as parents, right, or failing as mentors. And if you wake up in the morning and the kids are able to eat and the kids are able to go to sleep, like, no one's failed at being a parent, right? And so that's also something that we can also let go of. Thank you. I don't know. <laughs> I know that when people let go of trying to be a good man or they let go of trying to be manly, oftentimes that leads to greater happiness. Um, because it's a constant stress, right? It's like keeping up A's in school. That's a constant stress. If everyone's trying to keep up A's at being a man, um, that's just going to be constant. This isn't a change that's going to happen overnight. But I think that you hit on it when you said people should just be people or, or something. Yeah, be who you are. Because if people come to the world with the understanding that they don't have to perform anything for anybody else, that they can just be their natural selves, I think it's going to lead to a lot less stress, a lot less self-torture of the individual. Sure. Yeah, um, actually, fun story. One of the things that I always encourage kids to do is like read and um, process critically a lot of media. Um, because that's how we learn, right? That's how we learn about different stories, different cultures, different people to ourselves. Um, other ways that people develop social emotional intelligence is honestly just uh, by doing work like this or doing volunteeric. I mean, the people that work at the soup kitchen, right? They have to think about emotional intelligence a lot. Um, something that I also like to think is the same way that each of us is inherently born with basic skills in physics. That's how we shoot a basketball, right? Each of us is innately born with the ability to learn the emotions of others and get really a lot better at processing that. The reason that I really encourage kids to read from an early age is not because I have this um, not for like college and career readiness, which I really dislike as a phrase. I encourage kids to read because it's the only time that you actually can sit inside someone else's perspective and learn what it feels like to be them. I love how the librarian in the back was like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
So that's a really good question. Um, what I find within my own community is that a lot of us process it through performance. So something, so how many of you have ever seen a drag queen? So, ooh, yay! I thought we were in the suburbs. This is so good. <laughs> Sorry, that was terrible. Um, <laughs> but something that I always find fascinating about drag is that drag is processing emotion. Um, when I'm connecting to a song, and I literally do this, when I'm advocating against um, a school that doesn't want the student that I'm advocating for to receive services, or if I'm really frustrated because I just did a training and um, somebody was saying horrible victim blamey things, I literally go into the car and I have a playlist that's called Breaking Case of Emergency, and I lip sync for the gods, darling. And the reason that I do that is because it's a really healthy way to express a lot of um, the aggression that I've been taught as a man, right? To fight against other people. And what I see within my own community is a lot of people using either drag or using other forms of performance to try and channel a lot of the hurt and pain that we feel um, and express it. I mean, that's the power of art, right? It's the only way that you can understand what the I'm thinking. That's it. <laughs> Thanks for that. Any other questions? All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for your time. If you have questions, I'll be up here. And have a great day.